Hey everyone, welcome to Be The Change. My name is Lily Mott, and today I'm going to be talking about how change comes when you stay authentic. My guest this week is Jonathan Lamb, and I'm really excited to share this conversation because Jonathan is a great example of someone who's used his experiences and the hardships he's faced to really inform his advocacy. Jonathan is an immigration rights and racial justice advocate, and I got to talk with him about his background, his story, and his hopes for the future of immigrant rights in America. So, without further ado, let's get started with this episode featuring Jonathan Lamb. Hi, my name is Jonathan. I'm 16 years old. I'm currently a junior in high school from Queens, New York. And my advocacy focuses more on like immigrant rights and racial justice. Uh, I'm a son of Vietnamese refugees. Uh, and so during, I guess, the election of 2016, when immigration was just such a heated debate, I remember hearing a lot of ignorance from both political parties. And so that really opened my eyes to wanting to get involved as a grown up. And so when I entered high school, that's when I seek for more opportunities to get involved with immigration organizing. And so I found a community-based organization located in Flushing, Queens um, called the Ming Kwan Center. And Ming Kwan focuses on a lot of like immigrant rights organizing and community-based organizing. Um, and they have this youth programming going on um, to learn about social justice and get on hands-on experience with social justice campaigns. And so I was really, really captured to this program. And so I applied and I did the program during my freshman year of high school. And it was really, it was a great experience. Um, and there was a lot of learning and unlearning to do in the program um, that really educated me about social justice and immigrant rights. And so from there, I got involved with their organizing committee where I was able to lead projects. Uh, one of them was our housing displacement project where we were combating this huge luxury development that was occurring in Flushing. Flushing, like many communities in New York City, are low income. And so it was going to displace a lot of immigrant tenants, a lot of immigrant-owned businesses, and that was something that we were against. And so we were able to organize around that, call legislators, um, participate in city council, public hearings, um, and really utilize social media as one of our strategies to get that word out there. Unfortunately, the project did get passed, but it's something that has been such a meaningful experience for me to really experience that whole idea of like community organizing and immigrant rights. Um, and so from there, you know, I've been involved with other immigrant and also racial justice related organizing. Um, I currently organize now with like the NYCLU, which has been incredible. And very recently I was appointed as like the youth co-chair of the education transition committee in New York City to help provide education policy recommendations to our new chancellor of education and our new elected mayor. So all of that has been really incredible, but really my experience from Ming Kwan was the foundation of really getting um, hyped and getting into this organizing. So, Thank you for sharing some of that background with me. And I'm so glad that you were able to find that catalyst for your activism and really become so committed to your work. So I would love for you to tell me more about your background and maybe some of the experiences you've had that led you to dive into this work. If you're comfortable, I'd love to hear more about that background and that journey for you. 
Yeah. Uh, so this all goes back to like fifth grade. Um, so I had my grandma had kidney failure in both of her kidneys um, and she was 88 years old. And so uh, my parents and my whole family uh, decided not to really, I guess, continue with any like medical help or assistance in a way that would give her like, I guess, treatment for her kidney failure because she was getting so old. And so I, we kind of like, I guess, let her uh, pass away, but pass away very like um, peacefully, I guess, because we were so scared that the medical treatment was going to hurt her and put her in more pain. Um, and so to see my grandma like slowly died was very sad for me. I had a very strong connection with my grandma. And so to see her in that position in her life was just very sad and depressing. And so when my grandma passed away, I remember returning back to school after you know, doing all the funeral planning with my family and attending those different services. I remember going back to school and one of our assignments was to write something about our life and kind of like have every chapter be a new part of our life and like write about it. And my grandma just passed away. And so I found it appropriate to write about my grandma because she was such a huge part of my life. Um, and so, and also only in fifth grade, but I just wanted to learn more about her. Um, and so I interviewed my dad about her story and it was very captivating to like hear her experience and her life. So both of my parents were from Vietnam and during the Vietnam war on my dad's side, um, his dad committed suicide because the war was just putting so much on his mental health. And so that left my grandma, um, a single mother of nine kids during the war. And just hearing about her story of how like they were migrating out of Vietnam and going into this island in Malaysia. Um, it's called Budong Island. Uh, around 200,000 Vietnamese refugees went to that island to live. And that's where my parents settled and lived there for a while. And so after around two years, the Malaysian government gave them like sort of a warning and telling them like, hey, you need to go soon. And like, you need to start finding your own place. Like you can't live in this island for, you know, the rest of your life. And so they sort of pushed them out. And so they went to they went to Malaysia, they had enough money that they were saving up. And so they got a ticket to San Francisco in the United States. There was sort of like this poor like entry place in San Francisco where a lot of the Vietnamese immigrants and refugees were coming in. And from that area, you get to pick where you want to go in the United States and they'll help you sort of navigate that whole process. And so my parents settled into, or my dad and my grandmother settled into New York City. Um, and they settled into Jackson Heights, where I still currently live. But they lived in a very small apartment, uh, not that far from where I live right now. And so to really hear that whole story of my grandma doing all of this as a single mother and trying to navigate, you know, a, a new country and trying to, you know, be part of society and hearing about all of her sacrifices, working jobs uh, very late at night and just trying to do her best. Uh, really like opened my eyes to the struggles and sacrifices of an immigrant. From listening to what my grandma and like her story and just seeing like also what my parents went through at such a young age and their sacrifices coming into the United States, uh, both of my parents, you know, obviously at a very young age, coming to the United States, they had these high hopes of like, you know, achieving higher education because Vietnam didn't have that for them. And so when it came to the United States, they had that goal of getting like a college degree, getting that proper job, raising a family, you know, in like a middle class setting. That was their goal. But unfortunately, uh, they never really were given resources as, you know, new immigrants to this country. And so their goals of like going to college was just 
it was not there and it was unable to be achieved. Um, and they had to work at a very young age and, you know, start their own business and get really into the workforce and trying to get a source of income for their family. And so to listen to what my grandma, listening to my grandma's story and then listening to what my parents had to say about their own immigration story op really opened my eyes. And so then when the election of 2016 came around, um, it was exactly five months after my grandma passed away. It was, I believe it was November 3rd. Uh, or November 8th, that was the election of 2016. I just remember Trump got elected. And I think no matter where you are on the political, I guess, spectrum, um, we could all agree, I think, that Trump has very, very, I guess, xenophobic, anti-immigrant views um, that I just did not agree with, um, especially with a lot of racist comments going towards um, Latino immigrants in Jackson Heights, where I live right now, it's a predominantly Latino immigrant community. And to see what he said about them and to see what he was saying about refugees and immigrants as a whole and like how he wanted to build this wall, um, that really made me scared. And that really made me upset and pain and like really in pain. And, you know, my grandma just passed away. So to see him talk about immigrants like that, I was like, my grandma was not like that. Like my grandma sacrifice so much to get here and just a lot of the comments that he was saying was coming from ignorance that I just did not agree with um, and so from there in middle school I guess I was taking really my time to learn a lot about politics um, I would watch the news often watch it on YouTube I know that was very weird for a middle schooler to do but I found it really interesting and keeping up with like the news when it came to like immigration um, and even healthcare, because that was something my parents relied heavily on, Medicare, Medicaid. And so it was just very scary to see all of that unfold. And I guess what really piqued my immigration like interest or getting involved with organizing was in the seventh grade, we were reading this book called A Long Walk to Water. Um, There's this refugee kid coming from South Sudan. And we had a seminar and our first prompt was, is war necessary? And out of everyone in the room, I was that only kid that debated and argued that war was not necessary. And I argued, like, I just kept on arguing. And even though it was just a seminar, it was just part of a class activity. I was so passionate about it because of the kids around me that were saying that war was necessary. And they weren't even considering those that were being displaced. They weren't considering those that, you know, were going through all this trauma and their trauma not being addressed. And so to really see all of that unfold in front of my face at such a young age and seeing that firsthand of like ignorance of students, you know, not seeing the perspective of what an immigrant or a refugee has to go through, really like I felt like enlightened something within me. And so that's where really I got involved with organizing. And even within my organizing experiences, I've heard so many stories from my community members, especially during the pandemic of how they struggled through so much. Um, and to this day, even, you know, I, we're still in a pandemic and so many people and so many undocumented immigrants are struggling with rent. They're struggling to pay bills. They're struggling to access food. When you have something as simple as housing, when you have something as simple as, you know, accessing food, that, those are like basic human rights. And the fact that we're not even able to provide that for immigrants, for people that are so hardworking, you know, in communities that are not being invested into, uh, I think that that in itself should be enough for us. And that sh in itself should be enough for everyone to really start realizing that action needs to be taken and that enough is enough. And we have, you know, a new president and we have a newly elected mayor and city council. So hopefully there's hope down the road, but yeah, that's where we need to really start pushing for change.
Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that story with me because it definitely gives context about why you're so passionate about this issue and I just, I really appreciate you sharing that. So you ended talking a little bit about your hopes for the future and I would love for you to explain a little bit more about both the biggest challenges you see pertaining to immigration rights and then also maybe what changes you're hoping to see in the future. Tell me more about your vision for the future of this issue. Yeah, um, so right now with our newly elected uh, president, or not newly elected, I would say he's been in office now for almost a year. You know, he made a lot of promises. Um, and I guess one of those big promises that he made um, for immigrant communities is that he was going to pass a pathway or provide a pathway for citizenship for 11 million undocumented immigrants. Um, and so when he said that, that was his top priority for the first 100 days in office. Obviously, immigrant organizations, immigrant act, immigrant rights activists and organizers really were like pushing for that because he said it. He said he was going to make that pathway to citizenship. Um, and, you know, it's been over 100 days and we still do not have that pathway to citizenship. Um, and besides that pathway to citizenship, that's so crucial and so important. You know, the, the president is not, I think is failing to address a lot of the things that Trump was, I think, being so harsh about and being so cruel about. And I am just addressing now, like, the southern border as an example. Um, we saw in September, um, you know, all these articles and all these pictures of, I guess, the brutality that was occurring um, at our southern border. And, you know, the president and everyone in the administration and even the news, they were very, they're very shocked and they're like, you know, I didn't see this, you know, I didn't see this coming. Like, I'm, I'm very shocked about this. But for many, like, immigrant rights organizers and, and immigrants that face brutality firsthand at that southern border, we're not shocked. The president right now has funded the southern border um, more than any other president, any other sitting president in the United States. And we are funding into this horrible, horrible operation right now that's occurring at the southern border. I mean... Border Patrol has all this funding and it's just, um, it's unrealistic. You can't address a, a migration crisis uh, with violence. That's not going to, like, it's not gonna make any progress. It's not gonna make any change. Um, and we're just seeing now the re-implication of the Remain in Mexico policy, which basically will forcefully push out and ensure that migrants stay in Mexico um, before they enter into the United States. And while they're in Mexico, they're becoming more vulnerable and I guess more open to violence. And it's just very, it's a very unstable condition that we're seeing right now at the southern border and communities are near the southern border where so many migrants are living in. And so when you're seeing these implications of policies that, you know, Biden promised that he would not, you know, reinforce into our country. And when you're seeing, you know, all this investment towards that southern border, you know, we're basically investing into more brutality, more violence. We can't pretend and act shocked when we see these new updates about what's happening on the news and being like, oh my God, like we can't believe this is happening because we're funding so, so much money into that southern border when that could be reinvested into our communities. Um, and that adds on to the a second point of also we're seeing ICE detention centers. Um, a lot of these ICE detention centers, first of all, are once again, unstable um, and the fact that they've gone underreported it's just so sad um, we're seeing covid become such a contagious disease and to see that 
in detention center system, like it's just very sad. Um, and we're seeing so many families be captured and being detained. And it's just, it's very unfortunate. And when you're having a system that's so connected to also like for-profiting benefits to all these private companies and corporations, and we're using also immigrants and undocumented immigrants for free labor. Um, you know, many people right now are comparing it to modern day slavery because of the issues that immigrants are going through and the fact that it's not being recognized. It's so unfortunate. And so that's really, I think the, the three main issues are southern border citizenship. Um, we're also seeing TPS uh, being, in, um, being attacked. We're seeing DACA being attacked by especially the Texas government, state's government. Uh, and we're seeing detention centers not even being talked about. Um, and the president, you know, I think a couple months ago made a joke um, when there were protesters um, outside of his, I think, uh, press conference or something like that. And they were protesting, they were like abolish ICE um, abolish the detention centers. And he made a joke, he was like, give me five more days and everyone around him just started laughing. Um, but really like, this is not something to be laughing about. This is such an important issue that we need to be addressing. And for a president who promised communities of color, black indigenous communities of color, that he was going to prioritize immigrant rights um, and to see what's happening right now, it's very unfortunate. Um, and so, so far right now, I'm not very satisfied to what the president has done for immigrants. Uh, and I think in general, also on a citywide level, um, you know, we're still pushing, you know, living in New York City is totally different than other cities, of course. Um, so I can't provide my perspective on other cities, but living in New York City, I think we're making some changes. Um, and I think we're making some progress, especially with a new bill that we passed recently in the city council that would give non-citizens the rights uh, to vote and engage in local elections. So that's something that I was very happy to see. Um, but still in general, like going back to when I was talking about displacement gentrification, there's so many uh, undocumented immigrants and tenants uh, who are just not being represented right now. And we're seeing displacement gentrification be such a huge thing in New York City that's truly a threat to low-income communities of color and immigrant communities of color um, that are just doing so much just to just try to live in this country and live in this city. Um, and I know that right now the NYCLU is trying to advocate for uh, the passage of the New York for All Act um, that would just prohibit and prevent ICE from coming into our communities and detaining um, undocumented immigrants. Um, and so that's something that we're fighting for right now. Um, but I think in general, the city, I think, is making progress. Um, but I'm hoping that we continue making that progress. But there still is a lot, especially with displacement and gentrification that is not being recognized right now. Um, but I really hope that and um, I'm sort of hopeful with this new city council that we'll have a lot of changes coming in, um, just seeing how progressive we've um, how progressive the candidates and upcoming city council members have been. Uh, I'm, I'm quite hopeful for that change, um, but we'll, we'll see what happens. Thank you for explaining that, because I think for a lot of Americans, I think after the Trump administration, people may have assumed that immigration rights were going to improve and maybe stopped paying attention so closely to the issue. But of course, like you said, it's really important to stay focused on immigration rights and we need to be paying more attention to the issue because it's so important and it's affecting so many people. So thank you for sharing that. I have one last question for you. Lots of young people, particularly college students, high school students, want to create change and they want to make a difference in the world, but they may not know how or where to get started. Do you have any advice for those people who may be listening? 
Uh, yeah, sure. So I think for myself, um, it was definitely a privilege to be living in a city where there's so many active organizations. Um, and so I guess that would be my first advice. Um, if you want to get involved with not just immigrant rights organizing, but I think community-based organizing as a whole, um, really look for that nonprofit or look for that community-based organization in your community that you would want to get involved with. They're doing amazing work and amazing organizing work. And um, I think like you know, activism, especially with Gen Z. Um, I think there's so many ways that people would define it, but truly when you get involved with community-based organizing and community organizing, um, you hear so many important sort of stories from your community members. And it's just a very empowering experience and an important experience because you're also pushing for these new changes in local government. You're pushing for more representation um, and you're pushing for more community building. Um, we're seeing now these new mutual aid, um, you know, spots in New York City for community, they're like community fridges um, that are now popping up that we have like now uh, sort of like these community libraries where it's just free books that you get to put in and you know it's open for any community member um, and so also getting involved with mutual aid is also very important um, especially with the rising food insecurity rate and percentage um, you know that's part of I think making that change in your community part of community building and healing um, so those would be my first two advice um, other advice I would give um, is that there's so many um, petitions now online, especially with these organizations like, um, I believe, United We Dream uh, and uh, Freedom for Immigrants. Uh, there's there's so many organizations that have like these provided petitions that they're starting. And so I would say definitely sign on to those because those are very crucial and important. Um, there's also a thing called phone dogging uh, for citizenship that is still very active right now. So I would definitely say sign up for phone dogging. It's basically like phone banking. Uh, you're calling these legislators offices and you're pushing for citizenship. And so we've been doing that. And so I would say get involved with that. And then I would also say look for also active advocacy teams. Um, once again, it depends where, where you live, of course, if you're um, in an area where maybe organizing or these like activism programming aren't provided to youth. Um, I would say still try to reach out and try to do your best. But yeah, that would be another step of just trying to find that active activism group on Instagram, even if they don't have really like an open spot or they don't say, you know, on their website or on their Instagram page that they have an open spot for youth. I would still give it a go and contact them because I think organizations in general and all these new nonprofits, I think that they would love to see active teenagers and youth that want to get involved. So I would say that's another way. Uh, and I think in general, sharing information is so important. I wouldn't define that as, as activism, but I think that still makes a huge change and it makes a, a difference um, in educating each other, um, especially in the topic of immigration. Um, you know, our president is a Democrat, and I think a lot of people think immigration is a political issue, which I disagree. I don't believe it's a Democrat Republican issue. I think it's an issue based on human beings and that we need to address it regardless of political parties. Um, and so I believe that just sharing information is just such a crucial and important thing to get involved with, you know, these, once again, these organizations um, that are, you know, the ACLU that they're posting on their pages about new updates in terms of like immigrant uh, rights news and everything like that and new, new events and um, everything that they're being active with and they're engaging with. I think that's very important to share on your social media page. But yeah, those are just a few things uh, on the top of my head. Uh, I'm thinking about how someone could get involved. Um, I also know that 
there's also these things called hotline, sort of, um, I wouldn't call it phone banking, but there's these hotline trainings that organizations like Freedom for Immigrants are providing where you're calling detained immigrants um, and you're trying your best, I think, to provide services or you're just there to provide some sort of comfort, which is so important. Um, so I would say that's another way if you could get involved and see how you could help those that are being detained right, right now um, and helping those that are also undocumented in your communities, especially undocumented youth. There's uh, in New York State, we have organizations like the New York State Youth Leadership Council, which is a undocumented led organization that have done amazing work, like amazing, incredible work to providing resources and opportunities for undocumented students. A lot of undocumented students don't have accessibility to a lot of these different opportunities um, that, you know, simply because of citizenship based on like legal status, which is so sad because um, no one's future should be determined by your immigration status or legal status. Um, and so organization like New York State Youth Leadership Council has done amazing work uh, with providing scholarship, mentorship opportunities, internship opportunities, fellowship opportunities, and youth programming to empower undocumented students and provide that comfort space. And so I think getting involved with those spaces are very important as an ally. Um, and also, I think also donating and fundraising for them and providing, you know, financial assistance or, you know, trying to, I guess, you know, whatever your capability is, I think that would be great to, you know, donate to an organization, but that definitely does contribute to a lot. Um, so yeah, I think those are just a few ways of how you could get involved with uh, immigrant rights organizing and, and just in general, trying to do your best part of the movement. I think my favorite part of this conversation with Jonathan was just how much he genuinely cares about immigration activism, and you can hear it in his voice so easily when he talks about his work. Jonathan found his path to activism through the hardships that his grandmother, and then his parents, and of course the rest of his family faced, and that personal connection to his advocacy makes Jonathan so much more committed to the cause. I know Jonathan is going to continue to let his identity and his experiences fuel his work because it's such an important part of who he is. If there's one thing I took away from Jonathan's story, it's the importance of being authentic in activism, advocacy, and pretty much anything else you're doing. Because if you're lacking authenticity, the work you're doing will never be very genuine and it won't be true to you. We can all take a page out of Jonathan's book because change comes when you stay authentic. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and you can follow Jonathan on Instagram at lambjonathan underscore to get connected with him. If you want to talk about anything I mentioned, please reach out to me by email at lily at bethechangepodcast.org or on Instagram at bethechangepodcast. Tune in for my next episode, but until then, be the change you wish to see in the world. Bye, guys.